You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So as, as most of you in the room probably know, we've been in the midst of a 16 or 17 week journey through the book of Exodus. And we've said over and over throughout the series that the book of Exodus is really a case study in the way that God saves his people, both his people historically and eternally, his people individually and his people corporately. And with that, the Exodus becomes our our family history. We look back on it as our family history. And through the book of Exodus and the narrative of the Exodus, we come to better understand our place in the world as God's people. The writers of the New Testament, specifically the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, tell us that we should be instructed from the narrative of the Exodus, that we should learn from it and grow from it, and ultimately that we will better understand our Savior as we better understand what is going on in the narrative of the Exodus because Jesus is an Exodus-shaped Savior. And he's saved us to be an Exodus-shaped people, and he's given us Exodus-shaped work to do in a world and in a neighborhood which desperately needs an Exodus. And so last week, we saw the account of the people of Israel worshiping a golden calf. And in the context of where we are in the narrative of the Exodus, it was a confusing thing. God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt through mighty acts of judgment and plague and and saving them through the Passover and parting a Red Sea so that they might walk through and, and crushing their enemies in the waters. He sustained them in the wilderness with bread and with water from heaven and from a rock. He had proved himself utterly faithful, utterly powerful. And yet, at the first chance that the people of Israel got, while Moses was on the mountain meeting with the Lord for 40 days, they grew weary. And they went to Aaron and they said, make us God so that we can worship. And then they started giving credit to a golden calf for all the things that God had done. And what we saw is this made God, Yahweh, angry. And he wanted to pour out his wrath on Israel. And he wanted to just start over with Moses. He said, Moses, I'll still make you into a great nation. But these people are stiff-necked. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. They're unfaithful. And God's anger was justified. I mean, God had made this beautiful covenant with the people of Israel. And they had promised him as they were consecrated by blood. They said, we will do all the words that Yahweh has told us to do. But Israel, who the Bible says is God's son, proved to be a rebellious son, stubborn son, a wicked son. Israel is also described in the Bible as the bride of Yahweh. And if they are a bride, then they prove to be an uncontrollable adulteress. Promising faithfulness to their faithful and loving husband, but making their bed with gods of their own creation. And so God responded with anger. But what happened? Moses stood in the place of Israel. And he begged the Lord. He said, 
Please be faithful to the promises you've made to them. These are your people. And God relented. But this week, what we see is more consequences for the people of Israel's adultery against Yahweh. God responded with anger before, and today we see him continuing to respond to a disloyal people. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 33, the word of the Lord says this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You can almost feel the hurt in Yahweh's voice. If we think of the God of the universe as unfeeling and unrelational, I think this text shows us that he's not. He's deeply hurt by the faithlessness of his people. These people who he saved through all these mighty acts. But even in the midst of his hurt, he says, look, I will give you the land I promised to give you. You can have it. You can still be a great nation. But because now I know the kind of people you are, now that I see the the sort of rebelliousness that you have, I can't go with you. Because I'm a holy God and I'm a righteous God and I will not be able to handle it. Because if your unholiness meets my holiness, it will be a disaster for you. So you can go and be a great nation, but I cannot come with you. Essentially what's happening happening here is that Yahweh is telling Moses that Moses can take his people and they can be a great nation in the standards of the world. They can have wealth and prosperity. They can have this ideal real estate with broad borders where olives and and grapes and milk and honey flow. They can conquer their enemies. They can be the most powerful nation in the world. But since they've proven they have no interest in being holy, and since they've proven they have no interest in being the kingdom of priests that Yahweh set them out to be, that's all they'll be a great nation in the standards of the world. And it's easy to look at at what's going on and, and just be frustrated with the people of Israel. Like, how could you see how faithful God has been to you? How could you see how loving he's been to you and turn your back on him? Like, don't, don't you know that it's safer with him? Don't you know that there's more power with him? And it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to look upon the people of Israel with a bit of arrogance. But but if we're honest as Christians, we're just as foolish. Have we not done the same thing over and over and over again? 
Have we not looked upon the forgiveness that God has offered us through the sacrificial death of Christ and still chosen sin and pleasure over and over and over again? Have we not looked at the blessings God has given us in his people and in his church and in his, in his commandments that will lead to our joy and turned our back and, and sought to provide prosperity for ourselves and other things? I mean, we craft golden calves daily, hoping that, that they will provide us hope. And so maybe we shouldn't look upon Israel with arrogance or with frustration, but maybe we should look at the reality that that the unholiness, the disobedience, the rebellion of the people of Israel has meant that they are no longer going to have God's presence with them. We, like the people of Israel, so often look upon our new identity as those whom God has saved to be holy ministers of his grace. And we've chosen to make gods for ourselves. And now the question is, is if this is what is becoming of rebellious Israel, what's going to become of us? What's going to become of us? And, And so let's pick up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, so God has told Moses, he said, you can have the promised land, but I'm not coming. And Moses responds this way. He says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me yet know who you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, being Yahweh, responds to Moses saying, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said, and Moses responds and he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So Moses responds to Yahweh and he says, If you're not going to be in the promised land, we're going to stay in the wilderness. If, If you're not coming with us, then we're not going. Let us die here. If you're not coming. Moses says, so what if we conquer a land and have it to ourselves? So what if our, broad, our borders are broad and safe? So what if our wine press is ever flowing? So what if our silos are full of grain all the time? So what if we are the envy of all the nations? If we don't have you. If we don't have you, then... then There's nothing different about us. Moses is saying, your presence, God, is what makes us different. Without it, we can't be holy. Without it, we can't be a kingdom of priests. Moses knew that without God's presence, there was no amount of prosperity that mattered. He wasn't content to lead his people simply into riches and peace. Why? It seems that they would have been content with it, given their track record at this point. 
It seems that the people of Israel would have been content with going to the promised land and having prosperity and power. But Moses loved his people enough that he wanted more for them. As the chief advocate of the people of Israel, Moses tells God that he would rather that he and his people die in the wilderness than enter a promised land without Yahweh's presence. Why? Because Moses is a faithful advocate for the people of God. God's presence dwelling among the people was the difference between being God's people, God's treasured possession, and not being. And Moses wanted his people to be God's people. And what's wild about this is that God agrees. For the second time in two chapters, Moses pleads on behalf of his people and and God relents. And he says, I'll go with you and I'll give you rest. And the question is, why? It certainly wasn't because Israel was deserving of God's presence going. But if we look at verse 17, we'll we'll see the answer. It says, The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. The very thing being going with them to the promised land. He says, For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And in the Hebrew there, the word for you, when God says, You have found favor in my sight, is singular. God is not talking about the people of Israel. He's talking about Moses. God will allow his presence to dwell among an unfaithful people because they have a faithful advocate who loves them, who has been with him, who he knows and who is pleading for them. God's presence will dwell with his people, not because they are faithful, but because the one who represents them is. Last week we saw that that God is not going to, to destroy us in wrath as a result of our sin. Why? Because we have an advocate in Jesus Christ pleading God's grace for us, pleading his mercy for us. We saw that if we put our hope in Christ as our advocate, as our high priest, as our savior, as our king, that God will not destroy us in judgment. And church, that's really good news. But this week, we see something even more glorious. Even more glorious than not being destroyed is that in Jesus, we truly have a faithful advocate, far more faithful even than Moses, who is pleading on our behalf so that God can dwell among us. Church, God is not dwelling among us because we're faithful. He's not dwelling among us because we've obeyed him enough or or because we've set up our systems and structures in a way that please him or because we have a liturgy that is systematic or, or any other thing. God is dwelling among us because Jesus has entered in before us and begged him to. He has been faithful though we are unfaithful. Though thousands of times over, we craft for ourselves golden calves, even more times over does Christ plead that God would dwell with us. And Jesus, being far greater than Moses, allows us for us to experience the presence of God in a much more glorious way even than the Israelites did in the days of Moses. 
See, this is what Moses is pleading for, that God would dwell among the people of Israel in a tent, in a tabernacle, behind a curtain, so that the people of Israel could see that God's presence was near them and among them, but they would never be able to actually be within his presence. But let's not say that that's a small thing, that's a huge thing. That's the difference between Israel being God's people and not being God's people. That's the difference in Israel being able to make sacrifice and offering and prayer and receive forgiveness for their sins than not being able to do that. But in Christ, in Christ, we have something more. See, in the days of Israel, God's presence was a blessing. The Lord would allow his people to come and through a high priest once a year, meet with him. God's presence there in the most holy place in the tabernacle and in the tent was what set them apart. But the people, other than the high priest, could never enter into the presence of God truly. But it would be among them. But through the work of Jesus, we have the presence of God available not only to dwell near us and not only so that some of the elite people in God's church might experience it, but so that all who would put their hope in the faithful one on their behalf might have God's presence not only dwelling among us, but within us through his spirit. Church, we no longer have to stand on the outside of the tabernacle looking in and wondering what that's like. God has made our bodies the tent of his dwelling. This means that at any moment we can enter faithfully into the presence of God with confidence in prayer at the table among the fellowship of believers as we read his word with full confidence that he will treat us gracefully and make himself available to us. Why? Not because we're faithful, but because the one who we have put our hope in, our advocate Jesus Christ has been. And he always will be. This is beautiful and important news, church. The God of the universe, the God of all things, has suffered to the point of death at the hands of an unfaithful people in order to make himself available to us for intimate relationship. And all it took was Moses having a taste of this, seeing a shadow of this, that he was willing to give up all amounts of prosperity in order that his people might have. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, you were formerly like one of the Israelites. Worshipping idols, pursuing passions of your flesh, seeking faithfulness and security and pleasure and joy in the things of sin. But church, hear this, Christ loved you. And he died for you. And he pled for you. And he saved you so that now you can have full access to God through him. And because of that, you're fundamentally changed. You cannot experience the love of God in Christ. You cannot experience the presence of God that's available to us in the Spirit and not be changed. It's utterly impossible. 
You have gone from being one who could not be near God's presence without being condemned to the point of death to being one who has sweet communion with the holy, terrifying, awe-inspiring God of the universe. So what do we do about it? What does that mean for us? What we ought to do is we ought to be more like Moses. One, in that we should know that now that we have tasted and seen the presence of God, we should know that we should desperately crave it above all other things. But we should be like Moses in that we desperately crave it not only for ourselves. We should be like Moses in that we should love those around us. Those in our community who are still creating for themselves golden calves to worship. Who would still be utterly satisfied with prosperity and power and wealth and safety. That we would be willing to give up anything so that they could have what we have had in God. We should love the people around us so much that we would forfeit worldly prosperity that we would forfeit safety and power and glory and acclaim. We should love the people around us so much that we would give up anything just so they could have a taste of God's presence. See, Moses could have accepted the terms that God gave him in, in the first three verses of the chapter. And if he had done that, Moses would have been a king of the most powerful nation on earth. He would have been probably the wealthiest man on earth, the most envied man on earth. He could have had comfort, glory, praise. People still would have written about him in history books. But instead, if we were to look at what actually happens to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, we would see that him pleading on behalf of his people so that they might have God's presence led him to never entering the promised land. He died in the wilderness so that his people could have the presence of God available to them. Moses gave up everything so that God would be gracious to his people. And, and obviously, this is what Christ has done for us. He has given up. He gave up glory in heaven. He gave up power in heaven. He allowed himself to be tortured, beaten, cruelly mocked by sinful people in order that we could experience the things of God, the presence of God, the glory of God. And now the call of the Christian life is that we would be like Christ in giving up whatever it takes so that others might experience this beautiful love. Experience God's love in Christ changes you. We've already said that. But if it has changed you, if it has changed you, I would invite you to take up the mantle of a faithful priest. Faithful and loving like Moses. Faithful and loving like the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. Church, would you love your neighbors in Montrose enough to give up whatever it takes so that they might know God in Christ? Like, would you really be willing to commit to the people in this geography to the extent that you would consider them your people? 
and that you would sacrifice whatever it takes so that they might also be God's people? And it's easy to hear that question and and get excited and say, yeah, we'll do that, but count the cost. What might it really cost you? It, It might cost you a lot. It'll cost you your time. It'll likely cost you your comfort. It will likely cost you your money. I mean, Houston is a land of financial opportunity. You can climb the ladder, you can make all the money, and you can buy a really cheap house in Sugarland with a big yard, and you can fill it with dogs and things, and the people in Montrose will not know God because of it. Or you can commit to living in a really dingy, musty, one-bedroom apartment in Montrose for the sake of the people of Montrose becoming God's people. You could fill your schedule with things that really please you and that you really love and that you find a lot of pleasure in, or you could give your time to your neighbors. Like, have you tasted the glory of God in his presence enough that all you would want is other people to have that? And to be honest with you, sometimes I don't feel like I have. Sometimes I'm all too satisfied to be comfortable. I'm all too satisfied to to store up a retirement account or save for vacations or put my time into hobbies or to stay at home and rest. What if I told you that the mission of God in Montrose might mean that you retire 5 to 10 to 15 years later or you never do? What if, I, what if I told you it would mean that, that you would have less time to do the things that you think are really fun? Less time to read and watch Netflix. Less weekends out of town on vacation. Do we love our neighborhood that much? And at this point, you're probably asking, okay, like, what if I said yes? What's in it for me? Like if I, if I gave up that much so that the people in my midst could become God's people. And I'm not saying that that has to be in Montrose. There's lots of places where we want people to be God's people. In fact, all places. But we're in Montrose. And what if you said, yes, what's in it for me? First, know that, that Christ consistently in his earthly ministry told his followers to count the cost. He never said it would be easy. He never said the life of Christian ministry will be easy. The life of being my son or my daughter will be easy. He promised them, in fact, that they would suffer. He promised them that it would cost them dearly. But church, this is what you get. You get God. You get relationship with the God of the universe. You get to taste and see the glory of the God who formed you in in your mother's womb and who chose you before the foundation of the earth and who gave everything so that he might call you a beloved son or daughter, even though over and over and over again you would turn your back on him and he would still plead on your behalf. That's what you get. You get security in a God whose faithfulness will never end. 
You get love in a God whose love is unending. You get forgiveness through a sacrifice that is sure to be sufficient. You get to live free from guilt and fear and condemnation. And one day, one day, even if all of us die in this wilderness, one day we will experience a promised land far better than Canaan. Far better than Canaan. But for now, we're in the wilderness. But church, if we've learned anything from this text, we're not alone. We are not alone. God's presence is among us. It's in us. It's at the table. It's in his word. And it's what makes us distinct. It's what makes our ministry worthwhile. We could be like our neighbors. Pursuing prosperity and peace and power. Or we could give up everything so that our neighbors could have so much more than they ever dreamed. So much more than they ever dreamed they could have in the presence of a loving, holy, and majestic God who would look upon them and call them beloved. Would call them his treasure. God calls his people his treasure, which means though we may not become rich in worldly standards, God considers himself rich just to have us. Would we respond by considering ourselves rich just to have him? See, most of our neighbors would be far too easily satisfied with wealth and comfort and pleasure and leisure, and if we were really honest, most of us would be too. But will we love one another? And will we love our neighbors? And ultimately, would we love the sweetness of friendship with God in Christ through the indwelling presence of the Spirit enough to invite one another and our neighbors to something so much better than a full retirement account, worldly influence, sexual pleasure, and a house with a yard? See, see David tasted and saw what, how good it was to know God, how, how good it was to dwell in his presence. And he said this, he said, for a day in Yahweh's courts, just one day in Yahweh's courts are better than a thousand elsewhere. And then he said this, he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This was a king saying, I'd rather just be the doorman in the house of Yahweh than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Church, would we be faithful doorkeepers opening wide the door? The door who is Christ. So that our neighbors and friends and even some of us in this room might enter in the wide doors of grace and forgiveness, bearing all the suffering that comes our way in order that many, many might come in. Church, let's dream about one day our people, our friends and family members and neighbors in our areas of influence. Let's dream about what if they became God's people. I could stand up here and preach a lot of sermons that were maybe more exciting to hear. But I can't, I can't preach a sermon 
that has a more beautiful vision than pursuing a life of sacrificial faithfulness so that many might enter in God's kingdom and dwell with him forever. Let us not be satisfied with anything less than that for ourselves or for those who we love. Let's pray. Father, you're good. And we praise you that you have called us to know you through your son, that you have loved us and saved us and and made us useful. Though at times we feel and have proved ourselves to be useless, you've made us useful in your kingdom. Would you give us hearts of sacrifice that wherever it is in the city that we live, whatever it is that we do for work, whoever it is that we're surrounded by, that we would be willing to lay things down in order that they would come to know you? Would we be willing to love one another, our brothers and sisters in the church enough to repeatedly call each other to find their hope and their joy and their pleasure in the things of you? Would you protect our hearts from worshiping idols, though they are prone to every day? Would you protect us from it? Would you forgive us for it? Would you nourish us in your meal, sustain us in your grace? Lord, would you comfort us this morning, giving us full assurance that what Jesus has accomplished for us means that we will always have your presence. We're not a people without hope. We praise you for it. Would you comfort us in that? Would you give us confidence in that, that we will always have your presence with us, that we will never have to fear judgment or shame? or poverty, material or spiritual, because you are faithful and you have given us yourself. Pray, Lord, that you would would make this church, this congregation, Sojourn Montrose, one full of people who grow in love for their neighbors so much that they would call them their people and that they would lay everything down day after day in order that their people might become your people through your son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.